Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Hey, listener, just wanted to give you a heads up about this episode. We're going to talk about some content that may not be very appropriate for little ears. So as one parent to another, if you're driving around the car listening to this, you might want to wait and preview it before you let your kids hear it. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. How are you guys doing? Good. Tired. Good. good. <laughs> I'm good. I'm ready. Tim's over here chugging a Mountain Dew, just like he's in his 20s again. <laughs> I'm not in my 20s anymore. But no, you're going to feel like you are when you get that Mountain Dew in your veins. Two minutes ago, he was saying, I'm so tired. But now he's got Mountain Dew. He is tired. He's It'll real probably tired. kick in once the episode's over and we're done recording. You're trying to go to sleep. <laughs> It'll kick in right when we go to record the next episode. <laughs> oh, man. Listeners, the next one's going to be lit. So, listener, we want to acknowledge that this past week we had probably the most technical difficulties we've had in the young life of our podcast. We went to post an episode that we intended to post last week, and it didn't post because we had some technical difficulties. So then we had to really quickly edit another episode and post it. And because of it being edited really quickly, it also had some technical difficulties, which you may have noticed as you listen to it. So thank you for letting us know. We are aware of that and they should be fixed. Uh, and then uh, we're actually now re-recording an episode uh, that we intended That's to post right. last week. Because that one went to another dimension it or something. Gone. We don't know where I think it is. the angels in heaven are partaking of episode down. 34. <laughs> and uh, now it's episode 35. So one of the things that we had recorded in last week's episode that uh, we need to re-record is we had recorded who won the mugs. And so we want to tell you, hey, here's who won the mugs. If you submitted a review and a comment, we randomly generated names. And these are the names that win mugs. And, you know, maybe I'll insert a drum roll sound here and by maybe i mean i definitely won't but uh <laughs> here are the people who won the mugs oh z shep 18 which i think is zach shepherd i'm pretty sure that's who it is what if it's zelda shepherd it could be i don't know but if you have an apple account where you are you left a review under the name z shep 18 email us at thinklingspodcast at gmail.com zebulon and let us know your mailing address we'll send you a mug evan mckinney that one's a little easier than z shep 18 so evan send us your mailing address i just saw him this weekend i'll be counselor training. training yeah oh uh, i could have oh man we could have congrats but, evan sorry to have my ear yeah, mug with me that's our bad and then the last one is rev dash charlie and that's not me but you have a rockin name <laughs> and I'm pretty sure I know who you are. I think he's... Uh, surfer from California. I think the surfer from California. Right yeah. Now. So, uh, Rev Charlie, send us your mailing address, and uh, we will send you a mug as well. And uh, now after that, as always, we have some Thinklings business to tend to. Books and business. Books and business. Let's okay. talk about some books. I'll go ahead and start, but my Tim Little... You're going to love this. My Kindle is not working. See, this is why I should buy paper books from Tim. Okay, so I'm going to talk about Mapping Apologetics by uh, Brian Morley. So if you want to learn about apologetics, there's uh, a whole bunch of books out there you can use. And I really like Mapping Apologetics. What it does is there's probably two ways to think about apologetics. Most people, when they can think about apologetics, it's all of the arguments and data and evidences and proofs 
uh, trying to show that Christianity is true or defend it against attacks. And that's a good thing to study. But Mapping Apologetics is trying to do something different. It's like an overview book, and it's going to try to show you about all the different ways people try to defend Christianity. And the really nice thing about it is it, it has this spectrum chart at the beginning where it arranges different types of apologetics based on how much they use data or evidence or they argue from this position or that. that. And it's it's really, really helpful. So it's, it's uh, a book that I think if you want to learn, this is a good place to start. I use the spectrum that he presents in apologetics as our like way to go through all the systems. And the advantage to doing this, so most of the time if you have like an apologetics question, you go and look up the answer uh, somewhere. The advantage to learning the systems is it gives you the big picture and you'll probably find one you align with the best, but then it helps you just to think through the approach that you're going to do in most apologetic situations. And then when you see all these side by side, it kind of helps you to compare them and you can decide if you think this one's better or that one's better. So Mapping Apologetics, Brian Morley, he teaches out at Masters last I knew. And uh, so it's a good book. And I would give it... I would probably give it a six or a seven on the Thinkling's goodness scale. If you're if you're into apologetics, I'd put it higher than that. So when you're getting into the realm of apologetics books, so you, you're wanting to jump into worldview apologetics, that type of mm-hmm. thing, where would you place this as like an introductory text, oh. intermediate, advanced, like kind of put a barometer there? So it's gonna be it's gonna be somewhat intermediate. It's not that you can't approach it. If you've, if you've never read anything about apologetics, this is a great introductory book, but it is going to talk about some things that might be a little bit complicated. Um, but it's still a pretty good book, but I'd say like, if you've read any other apologetics books, or you've even done some dabbling in apologetics, this one might help answer questions about why does this guy only argue for Christianity from the resurrection, the proving, and why does this guy argue for Christianity using the Kalam cosmological argument? And then how come these people don't do either of those and just use the Bible to say, you already know this? And how come it'll do those sort of answers? And it's very helpful. Cool. All right. I have uh, The Intercourse of Knowledge on Gendering Desire and Sexuality in the Hebrew Bible by Athalia Brenner. So I've been doing a lot of study on the Song of Songs, and this was another book that uh, caught my attention. Um, she has some statements. She is a feminist. Uh, what that means is she's going to look at the Song of Songs differently. She's going to look even at um, the texts in the Bible that talk about women, as, well, the whole Bible, but particularly the passages that reference women uh, from a different perspective. I'm going to read uh, at least a quote here from the book in the introduction. She says, Most humans are socialized into their gender roles according to the norms prevalent in or aimed at by their communities. Okay, so I want you to think through that sentence there. Most humans are socialized. They're socialized into their gender roles. So we have these gendered roles of man and woman. And what is the source or what is the foundation or what's the authority that's created these gendered roles? And she says here, they're prevalent in or aimed at by their communities. See, so according to Brenner, and this is common for uh, feminist re- um, authors, is that they look at gender and they look at gender roles as something established not by the Bible, not by God, but instead by uh, the community. And so because it's something that has been established by the community, it can be something that can be upended. It can be changed. And so we need to depatriarchalize the community and the Bible 
and uh, we need to view it through egalitarian or equality, um, these equal eyes. So uh, Thalia Brenner is going to look at uh, the gender discussion from that kind of a perspective, uh, which I would contend is a wholly unbiblical perspective. The Bible is complementarian. It, it promotes a, um, a view of man that men are supposed to uh, fulfill a specific role. They are supposed to um, uh, be the providers and protectors of their homes. And then the, the ladies, they're supposed to be uh, fulfill particular roles as well within the home. They are uh, to be fruitful. Uh, they're supposed to manage the house and uh, be a helper uh, to the uh, husband. So these would be biblical roles for men and women, and not something that's just constructed by our community, uh, something that's constructed by God's word. So, uh, as far as the rest of the book is like, so is this thing completely worthless? Well, I would say no. I actually found it very interesting. She talked about birth control in the ancient Near Eastern world, which I hadn't heard anybody talk about that before. Uh, but she had some texts and um, some information on it, and even abortion. They, this is something I've seen a few occasions as well. People go to Numbers chapter 5 and believe that it's a case of abortion. Uh, Numbers 5 is not a situation of abortion. God is the one that's in control of the situation, whether or not the child lives or dies in Numbers chapter 5. We see a physical, uh, a live example, kind of, it's a little different, of Numbers 5 in David and how his son, the first son by Bathsheba, uh, died. And God was the one that did that. So there's no abortion in Numbers chapter 5. This might be a bigger conversation, but uh, you can study that out for yourself as well. Uh, furthermore, she also discussed um, the what is the Song of Songs? Is it pornography or is it eroticism or what are those things? And uh, that's something that I've been studying through and working through, so I found it helpful what she had to say. Do I agree with her completely? No. Uh, would I put this on the Thinkling's goodness scale? No, it's not orthodox. Okay, um, but if somebody is reading something that, or or they have a question on any of those issues, they might find that section interesting. But they're going to have to read it with a lot of discernment. That's interesting. So today in apologetics, we were talking about we were watching a debate between an apologist and an atheist, and then we were picking apart each of their positions. And the atheist was trying to argue that there is objective morality, even though there's no divine lawgiver or competent authority to give that. And so he was trying to like be objective, but not, but generally atheists fall in more of a subjectivist position. And Christopher Hitchens, I remember like watching a thing where he was discussing this with another apologist. And he said, he, I think he leaned toward the humans, like, like the social solidarity was how you got your, your moral standards. So that's really intriguing. That's, that's really not that much different from what some subjectivist atheists, do you know, is she an atheist? She's, I mean, if she's doing biblical studies, she probably wouldn't, I would assume she wouldn't say that. Uh, no, I, just cause she's doing biblical studies, I wouldn't put her outside the atheist camp. Okay. There's a lot of atheists hmm. and I wouldn't be surprised if she would be an atheist, okay. but she has a very, very low view of scripture. Okay. And then even a, a very different view of any kind of a supreme being. So that's um, intriguing. I wouldn't okay. be surprised huh. if she is an atheist. I haven't That's checked. Fascinating. Okay. Well, you know what is the opposite of a low view of scripture? Someone who privileges the text, which is the book that I'm going to talk about. Privilege the text, a theological hermeneutic for preaching by Abraham Karuvala and assist to his parents, because that's an awesome name, Abraham Karuvala. 
But yeah, so Privilege of the Text, he is like the book from last week about preaching Christ from the Old Testament. He's trying to give a hermeneutical approach to how should we preach from the Old Testament. And uh, like Gradanus last week, he definitely is open to more portions of the law being operative today and uh, definitely open to a high relevance of the Old Testament. And the way that they get there is unique from each other. Actually, Karuvala, I can't remember if it's Karuvala talks about Gradanus or Gradanus talks about Karuvala, but they interact with each other in their books, which is fascinating. And uh, they disagree. Like uh, they disagree on how you should preach Christ in the Old Testament. Do you preach Christ in the Old Testament? Which is is an interesting discussion, but I really like Karuvala. I think he, as his title gives away, I think he does privilege the text more than any other. And uh, the way that he finds operation of the law today is that he views it in a very sanctification, heavy sanctification mindset that uh, that was not meant in a salvific way at all. It was meant in a way of conforming and transforming the people of God. And so I know there's problems with that in an Old Testament sense, but I like what he's going for. Um, His big idea is that you need to preach pericope by pericope through all of the scriptures and that each pericope puts forth a theological ideal, which he distinctly um, draws a line between ideals and principles. He doesn't like the principle. He likes to create this world out in front of the text, which is kind of his big thing. And then as we ascribe to live this world in front of the text, as we try to obey and we follow the Lord to meet that ideal, God transforms us into his glory, which is an interesting, interesting view of the Old Testament. There's a lot of things. I, I really have to reread it, but I liked it. I really liked it. So for, just, Charlie, for our listener, do you want to explain what a pericope is? Yeah, and I actually can remember the first time I heard that word. It was in my first seminary class ever, Dr. Doug Brown, The Passion Week of Jesus. And he started talking about, Ooh. you're going to pick a pericope and you're going to write a paper on it. And I had no idea what pericope was either. <laughs> and pericope is a single unit or a paragraph would be a way of, of describing it. I'm not exactly sure what that term means, but paragraph or single unit. And and so for the listener, probably it can sometimes be the English paragraph, but sometimes that's why your Bible has headings because it's like pericopes are like the multiple paragraphs, but it's like one thing. So, okay. Yeah. And even different manuscripts kind of offset things differently. And the old Testament is different from the new Testament in the way that it does that. So your English translations usually try to help you out by guiding you with that structure. A lot of times they're correct. Other times they're less correct. In the old Testament, a lot of times it's divided by scenes. So you have a scene in one location, like the, um, the road to the road on the way to Bethlehem. And then, uh, you have another scene like at Bethlehem or something along those lines. Uh, So it's kind of interesting. You mentioned like these ideal characters and, um, or this ideal behind the text. We do see that sometimes actually within like the wisdom literature Proverbs, we have the virtuous woman and she's like an ideal woman. She's not a real woman. And even within the song of songs, we have these ideal lovers. So I think there is value to saying, Oh, there's this ideal. There's this, this is the way that it was supposed to be. And we're broken. We live in this sin cursed world, but that ideal gives us an idea of what it's supposed to be like and what to strive for. Yeah, and to be fair to Karuvala, 
One, he, he would not use the term ideal. That would be my description of what I think he's doing. And then he actually very specifically, you said the ideal behind the text. He would actually call that the idea of a principle. Like there's one principle that's founded in, in by all of these writings. Like it's all of these things are writing from a principle. He would say that each author is setting forth an ideal. And as you put those ideals together, it's projecting an ideal world. And he would actually specifically say the world in front of the text, like what the author is wanting to see done. And so you piece all of those ideals together. And I mean, I would say that you have the kingdom, but he doesn't use that terminology. But though, as we ascribe to those ideals built pericope by pericope, we are striving to be like Christ is what he would say. And I, his last chapter is really heavy on a sanctification idea, which is really good. Like I said, I, this is a good book. I would say a four right now. If I read it again, it might become like a seven. It could also drop to like a two, but who knows? Good. All right. Well, listeners tonight, we're going to talk about uh, a book called the making of an atheist by, uh, by a guy by the last name of Spiegel. And so this book, man, I really, really liked it. And I talked about it a couple of times in episodes earlier as I was reading through it. So tonight, what I want to do is do three things. Number one, I want to explain the premise of the book. Number two, I want to give you the fastest flyover of the five. It's just a five chapter book. The fastest flyover of those five chapters. Then number three, I really want to hit the centerpiece of the book, which is chapter three. In chapter three, he really makes his case and then everything flows po- like chapters one and two are pointing to chapter three, and then everything flows from chapter three, four, and f- uh, four and five. All right. So here is the premise of the book. The, there's a verse in the Bible, Psalm fourteen one, and the key text that he uses is that verse. And this is the verse: "The fool says in his heart, there is no God." Now I'm going to stop there. I'm not going to quote the rest of the verse because most of my life, that's what I thought. I'd heard that part of the verse, the fool says in the heart, there is no God. And I actually didn't know that the verse went on. And so what he says is you need to continue to read the other portion of the colon. So it goes on to say they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Now what's really intriguing about this is that there's a connection here Spiegel thinks there's a connection between the doing of corrupt, abominable deeds and them saying in their heart that there is no God. So his, his big idea, his premise is that an atheist, part of the reason, he's not going to go so far as to say the only reason, I mean, the Bible is saying this, but he's just allowing for other factors. So he just wants to be careful not to overstate, but he is saying that atheists when they say there is no God, there is a necessary connection to immoral behavior and immoral living. And so what he's going to try to do then is explain that. All right. So here we go. Oh, and and I guess you could say it like this. Most of the time when atheists present their position, they present it as an intellectual position. So they've studied, 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 they have evidence and they've come to this conclusion. There's no God, or they might say it's a negative It's a negative position. I would believe, but I don't see any evidence. And what Spiegel is trying to say is that an atheistic position is not intellectual beginning wise. It's actually, or it's not the only thing. It's actually a moral position and it's a result of behavior. So it's a really intriguing thought. All right. So that's the first thing. All right. And let me give you a quick overview of the whole book. Now, I think you should read this book. I really like it. I'm going to put it up at like a seven or an eight on the goodness scale. I think I may have already ranked it. 
if I have, then I, I say what I said before. If I haven't, it's a seven or an eight, <laughs> especially if you're into um, apologetics or you're curious about atheism. This is a good book. I think it's a great book for just anybody. It's, it's a popular level. Okay. So anybody can read this and I think it'd be really helpful for you. So I would really recommend it as well. Yeah. And it's really short. Like yeah. I read it in Kindle and I was really busy. And so I'm, and this is maybe a commentary on Kindle, but I'm, I'm really busy and I'm trying to pick away a couple screen screen, you know, s- scrolls at a time. And it took me, I don't know, a couple weeks, maybe a month to finish. It was, I was trying to truck through it. I was also taking heavy notes on it because I, I, I think this is really helpful in my worldview, my wheelhouse. Well, I got a paper copy eventually, and I was a little surprised at how, how, how thin it was. So this is really approachable. If you've not read any books on atheism, this is a pretty good option for you. All right. Uh, here's your overview of the outline. All right. Chapter one, what he's going to do in chapter one is he's going to define atheism. He's going to present the reasons that they give for being atheism, atheists. And then he's um, going to move on to talking about how those reasons don't make sense in chapter two. The two big reasons that he points to, and these are, he calls them the usual suspects. Um, It's the problem of evil and logical positivism. All right. Problem of evil is, this is very normal. If you watch any atheist on YouTube or read any atheist literature, one of the main reasons they, they do not think a God could exist is because of all the evil that is uh, in the world today. Now there's answers for that. We're not going to do that right now. We could maybe do that another day. All right. The next argument that they'll present is logical positivism. And this is saying, I only believe what I can prove. And the problem with that is there's many things that you believe that you can't prove and specifically scientifically. And so there's a really uh, well-known uh, dis- a debate between William Lane Craig and an atheist named Anthony Flew, where Anthony Flew says, I only believe what I can prove. And Craig says, well, what about things that aren't provable? And Flew says, well, name something that's not empirically verifiable. And Craig starts rattling off this list of really serious things. And Flew's face, he's, it's like he'd never thought of that. But the point is, those are the two things. And so he points that out. Um, he actually has a really funny quote by George Carlin. Uh, George Carlin's a comedian and also a narrator for the really old Thomas the Trains. So remember those ones with like, they're kind of like claymation, but they're wooden trains. He was a narrator. And uh, he, he has this really funny quote in there. I'm not going to read it, but it's, it's entertaining. All right, that's chapter one. Chapter two, he basically just takes that and says, why doesn't that work? And his major case study is Anthony Flew. Flew said, I'm an atheist and I only believe what I can prove. And a couple of Christians, William Lane Craig and Gary Habermas in particular, had a, a, a long interaction with him through letters and emails. And he realized his position isn't able to be supported empirically. And so he left atheism. He didn't become a Christian. He, he settled in deism because he thought he could prove that and his own community like destroyed it. Like they just, they had a lot of bad things to say about him. But in this chapter, he offers the biblical diagnosis and the biblical diagnosis is Romans chapter one. There is truth. You do know it, but you don't want to know it because it means you're accountable to a God. And so what do you do with that truth? You suppress it in your sin. 
So that's chapter one and two. Chapter three is where he talks about the causes of atheism. That's the centerpiece. We're going to talk about that later. Chapter four, he talks about the obstinacy of atheism. And here he's just asking this question. It really does seem clear that there's really good evidence that a God exists on the basis of science, biology, evidence, morality. He gives all those. He says, so why do they persist in atheism? And so what he does is he offers some ideas about why they might continue to hold this. And he's pretty good at not just making guesses. He, he has a lot of research behind this. And then lastly, Chapter five is probably his like kind of homage to Blaise Pascal, or if it's not, then he sure is being Pascalian without realizing it. And he talks about the blessing of theism. And so he says, if theism really is true, which he thinks it is, there's actually a number of parts of life, aspects of life that you can have and engage in that you can't if you're an atheist. So it's 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 not an argument per se that Christianity is true. It's simply saying Christianity is true, and it's really good that it is because look at these things we can do that if I was an atheist, I couldn't actually do those things. So let's talk about chapter three, the centerpiece. All right. In chapter three, he's got a number of ideas. He wants to talk about the causes of atheism. And he's got a couple of big ideas. I want to focus on one briefly, and then I want to focus on another that I think is we're going to spend the most time on. So he talks about fatherlessness as a contributing cause to atheism. And I want to make a quick statement really quick so that we don't have, wow, the <laughs> silence your phones here, Charlie. I want to make a quick statement. He is very careful not to overstate anything. So he does not say this is the only reason this is always the case. He understands humans are complex, but uh, he does think that these are contributing factors. And he doesn't say that only because the Bible says it, he actually has a lot of research backing it up. And so he points out that it seems like there's a really consistent trend that many of the most well-known atheists in the last couple hundred years had a problem with their father. Either they didn't have one because their father died at a young age, or they had a father, but the father was kind of a weak fellow. And so, um, here he's, he's using Paul Vitz's research on fatherlessness. Now, Side note, this this is kind of taking like a Freudian psychological view. And so I want to be careful to say I'm not saying this is my main thing that I'm supporting. Oh, yeah, this is right. But I, it is intriguing. God created the family. He created the family to have a father and a, and a mother and some children. And so we know that doesn't always happen. But when one of those is missing, it does seem like that contributes in some people's situations. Yeah, just the... The statistical phrase that we'll throw out here is that correlation is not causation. They are correlated. Like the fact that a lot of these atheists you're about to run through mm -hmm. didn't have a father figure, that is a correlation, but it yep. doesn't mean that not having a father causes an atheist, but they're, they're connected. Yep. I think the statistical way would be to say it that yeah. way. Yeah. And actually, he's, so what he does is he, he's going to bring out, I'm going to read through some of the cases of the most well-known, but even after he lists all these he says there are people who didn't have fathers and then turned out to be Christians. And so it's not an always. And so that's where I would say this is intriguing. That's what I would say. I wouldn't say it's compelling. I wouldn't even say it's weak per se. I would just say it's intriguing to think about, but I'm, I'm probably not going to start here. Go ahead. Um, so as a father, we have, I have a responsibility to raise my children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so if I fail to do that, there is a responsibility that God has given me that I have failed to fulfill. Now, I 
could in God's grace and mercy, even if I fail in my responsibility, God in his grace and mercy may uh, see to it that my children uh, are, what, um, turn out okay or don't abandon the faith, okay? But um, but as my responsibility, if I, if I uh, abrogate my responsibility or don't fulfill it, then there's a higher probability that my children will walk away from the faith. So I like to look at that, what, what he's saying there as, say, as an admonition to fathers. Guess what? Yep. You have a responsibility to father your children. And so don't slack off on that responsibility. Be that father. And I, 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 I really think there's something here to consider, especially because uh, God calls himself a father and he uses that metaphor throughout scripture. There's a reason for that. And so especially if, and I'm, again, this is semi-Freudian, but at the same time, there are contributing factors in life. If you don't have a father or your father's very weak and then you hear about God being your father, there there may be things that are in your soul that you're mad about. You're frustrated. Why did my dad do this or whatever? But anyways, I, let me just read some of the names. So these are some atheists who are really well known and their fathers died when they were very young. So David Hume, when he was two years old, his father died. Now, David Hume is a well-known atheist who's uh, tried to take apart Christianity way back in the day. Arthur Schopenhauer was 16 when his fathers died. His father died. Friedrich Nietzsche was four years old when his father died. Bertrand Russell was four years old and his dad died. Jean-Paul Sartre was 15 months old when his father died. Albert Camus was one year old when his father died. Albert Camus is an, like an existentialist nihilist writer. Um, you read his work and it's, it's just very dark. Um, anyways, then there are other examples of atheists who they didn't have they didn't lose their father but their father father either abused them or they were they were kind of a weak father and didn't really have much of a role in the family so if you think of Thomas Thomas Hobbes when he was 7 years old his father turned his back and deserted his family and his mom was left with just the kids uh, if you think of Voltaire he had a very bitter relationship with his father his father's last name um, Voltaire wouldn't even take it. And actually, I know a guy who I didn't know he had a different uh, first name, and he came in to schedule something at a job that I had, and he worked with me. He was just going to use the same service that we provided. And uh, I tried to look him up by his first name. I couldn't find it. And he's like, oh, look up. And he gave me the real, the other name. And I said, oh, that's your name? And he's like, yeah, don't ever call me that. And it was because his dad walked out on his family. So there's a whole pile of these examples in here. So I would say that's a pretty intriguing thought. All right. But the one I really want to talk about is the idea of depravity. So the big idea of this chapter is of this section is that atheism is connected to immoral behavior. And he, what he does is he's, he's, he's taking Romans one seriously. In Romans one, it says that God, when people didn't acknowledge him and didn't thank him, they God gave them over to sinful desires and actions, and then they persisted in their unrepentance and sin, and he gave them over further to um, bad relationships or, or misused relationships. And it get, it's like this really big descent of sin. And so what Spiegel does, James Spiegel, is he, he, he says, is there any research that would show that this actually happens? So he found a couple of books. One that was really intriguing is by E. Michael Jones called Degenerate Moderns. And it's a study of modern intellectuals. And what he does is he shows the connection between academic theories of scholars that are like atheistic and modern 
and then he ties those to their sexually uh, perverse or promiscuous lifestyles. So he's going to give a couple of examples and let's have those. So again, parents, this is where, this is where you might want to be a little careful. So he starts off with the case of a lady named Margaret Mead. Margaret Mead was a sociologist, or excuse me, an anthropologist, and she wrote a book called Coming of Age in Samoa. It was published in 1928. It was a bestseller. So what Margaret Mead did is she went to Samoa and she studied the people groups on the island and in the culture, and she looked at what kind of morality they held. Now, here's her thing. So what's intriguing is Dr. Little's book earlier today was using social um, relationships as the standard for morality. That's literally what she thinks as a, and she would have probably been a feminist in the day. And so she wants to prove that morals are just social constructions. So she looks at these, these, these tribes that are kind of insulated from outside influence. And this is what she found. They had very different sexual morals. In fact, it almost seemed like they didn't. So Spiegel uh, summarizes her and he says this. He says, Meade rejected the Judeo-Christian sexual ethic, which she flouted by suggesting that even seemingly natural sexual standards are merely culturally conditioned. After studying the Samoans, she proclaimed that they scoff at fidelity and they maintain a sexual ethos in which adultery is common but hardly a threat to their social order. Also, according to Mead, quote, this is now he's quoting Mead, the idea of forceful rape or any sexual act to which the participant did not give themselves freely is completely foreign to the Samoan mind, end quote. She concludes that the Samoans, quote, have no preference for reserving sexual activity for important relationships, end quote. So, she writes this, and as you can see, this is kind of a carte blanche. If, if you're going to take her study as an explanation of why there are social standards of morality, then what she just told you is these social standards are just social and you can do anything you want if society changes fine. And so this text, this book, advanced cultural relativism hugely in the day. And there was a big associated shift, her and some others, where it reinforced this idea of moving toward a more of a sexual permissiveness. So this was a big impact that this book had. Now, what's intriguing is that no other anthropologists checked her work, at least not for five decades. But five decades later, another anthropologist, a New Zealander named Derek Freeman, decided he was going to try to corroborate her findings. So he did the same study, went to the same location, and, quote, he found that Mead had badly misrepresented Samoan culture and sexual practice. So what he found is they had a very strict set of sexual standards, and they even strove to, to follow Judeo-Christian ethics in this area, which was really surprising to him. Now, what's, what you got to understand, listener, is that Mead at this point is wrong on a shocking scale. And so what Spiegel wants to know is, how could she be so mistaken? It was intentional. Yes, that's exactly right. So there's a, there's a sense here in which we as Christians need to be wise and to understand that if you're going against the way reality is, the way God has constructed it, 
it's going to be hard for you. You're going to have to bump up against it. And so what she did is when she bumped up against it, finds a culture that actually still has sexual morals, she misrepresented it because she wanted this to be the case. Now, here's where her own life intersects with her research. She actually was multiple times an adulteress. She had multiple partners And then later, she had a decades-long affair with another female anthropologist. So not only is she an adulteress, she was a homosexual. And then her own colleagues recognized this in her lifestyle, and they also thought, hey, this, this is primarily focusing on this is like what's pushing her own research. So this is really this is really um, destroying this argument that morals are social based on her research. So that's the first example he gives. There's two more that I'll talk about. These will be a little more brief. So there's the Kinsey reports. Now, there, recently there was a movie, Kinsey. I am not, I, something Kinsey. Don't, I'm not saying to watch it. I've never watched it. But it's about this guy. And so uh, there's a guy by the last name of Kinsey, and he did these um, studies on human sexuality And as he surveyed many, many people, he came up with a shocking uh, thesis that really variability is very common in sexuality. So there's hardly any consistency from one person to another when it comes to what they prefer in sexuality. And so he showed that some people prefer um, heterosexual relationships, some prefer homosexual. And then the, the really audacious thing is that he said some people prefer children and vice versa. Now, it's not that he's guessing at these things. He's actually done research. So he's interviewed people who are homosexual. He's interviewed people who prefer children. He's interviewed children. Sorry, this is really intense stuff. But the reason this is is so shocking is that the only way he could have gotten this information is to actually speak with pedophiles and then not turn them into the police later. So it kind of casts this huge, nasty shadow over his work. Now, when you look at his own lifestyle, he himself uh, was very sexually licentious. And so, again, it looks like he's trying to show that his own lifestyle's okay and he's looking for a way to prove it. So again, this is the this is literally a case of trying to show what you want it to say, not what it actually does. And then the last example he brings up is the Bloomsbury Group, which is a cadre of writers and artists who all had broad sexual morals. And what he points out is that they were all either bisexual or homosexual. One member was named John Maynard Keyes, and John Maynard Keyes in the group, like they all would write and try to promote this worldview. And he said this, he said he referred to modernism, and if you don't know what modernism is, go back and listen to the episode where we interviewed Dr. Kevin Bowder, and he explains pre-modern, modern, and post-modern. So Keynes says this, modernism is, quote, higher sodomy. He says, we were, and that is to say, in the strict sense of the term, immoralists, as in like, we want to be immoral. We choose immorality on purpose. So Spiegel shows that All of these atheist positions, all of these atheists have some sort of a sexual promiscuity in their life. And for him, it's very hard. The Bible says that if you're taking the position of atheism, you're doing immoral things. And so here he's showing that that's provable on evidence, like with evidence standards. And these are the words of atheists. These are not Christians writing these things. These are atheists on testimony. And then he ends this. And he takes you back to Romans chapter one. He says, look what Paul says in Romans. You deny God. You don't want God to exist. You cover up that knowledge. And what happens? You descend into a path of 
wicked living. And so here's, what do I want the reader to walk away with? What do I want the listener to know? Here's what I want you to know. When atheists say, I'm an atheist because of the evidence, remember, it's probably more than that. If you're listening and either you are an atheist or you've been, you're, you're being attracted to that position, please be honest about it and consider, is it just information that's making you go down that path or is there moral issues in your life that may be contributing to your unbelief. There's a reason in second, uh, in first Peter, it says that you should abstain from fleshly lusts that war against your soul. Uh, these things are bad for our faith. They, they, they tear down our belief. And so atheism is very seldom an issue of evidence. It's more an issue of morals. And that actually ties almost directly to what we talked about last week, where something that you love can become a God small G, which is becomes a demon and it, it actually draws you away from God. I just have, I have a couple quick comments and then, uh, go for it. I think Tim is going to jump in and has some ideas too. But what I, what I jotted down when I, when I wrote, when you, when you're talking is my dad always used to really struggle with things like this. It's like, how could someone know what's true? Like they, they hear the message and they just don't do anything with it. And what I always used to tell them was you should expect that sinners act like sinners. Mm -hmm. And so this shouldn't surprise us that people that outright deny God would have a lifestyle that spills out of their heart and looks exactly like that. But then the other two thoughts that I had was the way that you father matters Mm -hmm. And your sexual yeah. ethic matters. Yep. And uh, we are often convinced that our sin will not affect other people. But here are some ways that we've seen tested over time that the way you father could have a profound impact on the way that your child or another young person, mm -hmm. like your, your role in that young person's life could affect the way they view God and uh, your sexual ethic could have a profound way on how you and other people view God. And again, that shouldn't surprise us because God has a very well-defined sexual yes. ethic. So once you adopt a different one, you kind of adopt or throw away the God of the ethic you disagree with. But those are the three thoughts that I had. We shouldn't, shouldn't surprise us that sinners yep. sin and that atheists would have a more promiscuous life. And that along with that, the way that you father and your sexual ethic actually matter. Yeah. And I would say, I would just, I would jump back to say one other thing. Um, I have a, another friend who walked away from Christianity for a time and then came back. And when he was walking away, he was telling people it's because of uh, transitional forms in the fossil record. And you can see the evolution happening. When he came back, looking back, he said, I was just angry at God. And so it wasn't a morality sexuality issue there. It was actually, I'm mad at God. I'm angry at him. So again, what is, what is the verse he's quoting at the very beginning saying? It's saying the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. So it's not doing good to be angry at God. It's not doing good to rebel. So I, th I want to make sure that the listener understands. It seems like there's a pretty strong connection with the immorality, but I think there's probably other sins that would fit it too. 
So Psalm 14, 1, it talks about they are corrupt, they have done abominable works. This idea of the abominable works, the word that's used there is referred both in Leviticus 18 in reference to homosexuality specifically. You're uh, kidding. It, well, it's the verbal form in Psalm 14, but it's the nominal wow. form in Leviticus 18. Wow. Uh, in Leviticus 18, um, 22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Wow. And the word that's used there is toeva. Yeah. So I should say the reason I'm expressing uh, um, shock is because so many of the atheists here who had immoral lifestyles were also homosexual. So if, if you do like a word study and just study out this idea of the abominable, abominable things of God, uh, that God uh, finds abominable, it, it's a kind of an interesting study, but it's not just the big sins, okay? In Proverbs uh, chapter 6, we have the six sins that the Lord hates. Yes, seven are in abomination, abomination to him. Okay? What are those? And what are the seven sins that are abomination to God? A proud look, a lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift and running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. And so when we think of abomination, abominable sins, it's not just the big ones. It's even these other things that, um, um, I mean, I think of the proud look, okay? I think of the lying tongue. And uh, these are sins that... Even people who espouse to be believers, they commit on a regular basis, sowing discord among the, of the brethren. This is an abominable sin. So it emphasizes, I think, both the, um, the terribleness of uh, uh, sin and that God hates it. And then what we're doing when we do some of those sins is we're essentially just saying, you know what, God, I don't give a rip. I'm going to be my own God right now and I'm going to do what I want to do. Um, and we see that throughout our, our society, throughout our culture, and even in our own lives. That's intriguing. So the proud look, and that really caught my attention because pride is saying, like, I'm going to do what I want to do because I'm right. And then you said, it's almost like we become our own God. Mm -hmm. If I am living as my own God, mm -hmm. I would necessarily not think any other God exists. Exactly, because you've placed yourself in a position I as the God, God. So, yeah, there would Precisely. be no evidence that I Which would is see. exactly what the atheist has done. If there is no God, then I can be God, I become God, and I'm the God of my own world, and I can write the ethics that I want to write. In, in going, I know we talk about Romans 1 so much, but right in that same context, for although they knew God, not in a personal sense, but in a sense that his invisible attributes had been clearly seen from creation— and they had suppressed it in their unrighteousness. They knew him in that sense. They knew that he was there and that he was God. And they denied that. They suppressed that truth. Though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Yep. And I mean, that's yeah. right at the heart of what we're talking about. It is. It really is. <laughs> yeah. So I think that... Um, I want to, how do we want to end this episode? We want to be really careful. If you are struggling with um, unbelief or wondering if a God exists, there, you, you should know that you, you should need to reach out to someone, reach out to your pastor, reach out to someone who's discipling you. Um, it's better to open up about that and talk with people. Um, if you are struggling with that, I would just, I would urge you to consider 
that it may not be knowledge and information. It may not be an evidence or an empirical issue. You might think it is, but if the Bible is saying something that's true, and I believe it is, it there there's some connection to sin in your life. And if you're if you haven't been good at dealing with sin, if you haven't been careful, uh, if if you're just persisting to do your own thing, I, I would I would urge you to consider that part of the reason you're considering walking away is because you want to, is because there's sin in your life. Now, the other thing too is not believing in God is a pretty serious issue, but God loves you and God is very gracious and very forgiving even to those who deny his existence and live sinful lives. But what's intriguing about the Bible, what really, I love this so much is uh, there's another situation in my life where someone walked away and to my knowledge, they'd never come back. And I remember wondering how to pray for that person. Do I pray that God would make their life really, really hard until they come back? Would I, do I pray that God would punish them? Like, I didn't know what. And I was reading Romans, here I'm in chapter 2, and notice what it is that causes repentance. Uh, chapter 2, start, now understand, chapter 1's condemned to all of humanity, and chapter 2 is going further down that path. It says, so therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. This is literally saying that you know right from wrong, and when you judge someone else, you're condemning yourself because you yourself can't hold to that standard. And you might say, no, I do hold my standard. You got to hold it perfectly, bud. You got to be able to hold it perfectly. And if you don't hold it perfectly, you haven't held your own standard. Verse 2, we know that judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet you do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? And then he says this, verse 4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness, his forbearance, and his patience, not knowing that, the, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And that helped me to understand that there's the kindness of God is what really brings a person back. So if that's you today, if you're, if you're thinking about walking away from God, what's your picture of God? Is he an angry man? Is he out to get you? Is he always mad? Is he always looking for you to mess up so he can punish you? You understand that's a wrong picture of God, but if that's your picture, I probably wouldn't want to come back to the God myself, but the God of the Bible loves you. He's kind. He wants to welcome you back and forgive you. And he loves you so much that he sent his son to die so you wouldn't have to. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings podcast.